If you have your Bibles, you'll open to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at uh, verses 17 through 22 uh, this morning. This summer, we've been walking through a series uh, in the Ten Commandments, and I'm thankful for Tim and, and Matt, who uh, knocked out the last two commandments for us over the last uh, couple of weeks for uh, their handling of, of the Word and just... Uh, the blessing of seeing other godly men being able to fill this pulpit, not from outside this body, but right here in, in our midst. And I, I'm thankful for those men and, and their contribution to our time as we've explored the Ten Commandments. And we've been talking about a couple of big truths about the Ten Commandments that we, that we tend to see plastered on, on monuments and in various uh, places, even in some of our households, having those on uh, the wall in that good old King James Version We've been talking about two main truths, though, that, that first of all, that the commandments of God were given to us by God to reveal God's character to us. And that in these Ten Commandments, most of which are given to us as prohibitions, as, as don't do this and, and don't do that, that, that these prohibitions are revealing to us that God prizes some other things, the opposite kinds of things from what he is prohibiting. So where God prohibits adultery, what he's saying is, I've got something better for you. It's called biblical marriage. It's the gift of God bringing together a man and a woman in a biblical covenant marriage. And that is a beautiful and God-honoring and, and wonderful thing. And so God is prohibiting adultery, the breaking of that marital covenant, because he prizes marriage. And each of those commandments that prohibit something is showing what God in his holy character prizes and would have us to prize as well. And so as we come to the end of this series today, we're going to try to draw some things uh, to a close this morning by, by looking at Mark chapter 10 and this one that we often refer to as the rich young ruler. Now we'll talk about why he's called the rich young ruler here in, in just a few minutes. And you may be very familiar uh, with this account uh, from Jesus' ministry, but I hope this morning there will be some, some freshness to uh, God's Word as we explore it together today. As I was thinking about this man this week, I, I was thinking about some of the lessons that were just really ingrained in my heart and mind uh, by my folks as, as we were growing up together in my household. It was just me and my younger sister, and uh, there were just certain things that were kind of mantras around our household. Some of these I've shared with you before, but I wanted to remind you of a few of them today that just kind of stuck with me as we were growing up. One of the things I can remember specifically being said a lot, especially as we got to the age where we were driving and we were out of the house more, is uh, I can remember my, my mother often saying to me, remember whose you are. Not just remember who you are, but remember whose you are. In other words, remember your last name, remember who you belong to, and, and even more so as I grew in, in my identity in Christ, it, made, it was a reminder to me of who I am in Christ and how we want to honor him and honor our families by the way uh, that we live. I can also remember other things like finish what you start, and, uh, and sometimes that meant clean your plate at the dinner table, and sometimes that meant you joined the basketball team, and even though you now hate basketball with a holy passion, you're going to finish out the season even though you don't really want to. Finish what you start. 
another thing that I learned growing up, and I think this one may have been even more implicit than, than, than explicitly said, but one of the things that I remember just being ingrained in us was try to leave things better than you found them. I don't know how many of you can, can relate with that, but that was just kind of one of the truths that, that just seemed to be ingrained in us growing up. Just try to leave things better than you found them. Sometimes that means, dude, you need to clean up your room because it's a mess. But whatever it meant, wherever you go in relationships, in your work, whatever you're doing, try to leave things better than you found them. I think that's a very biblical truth. I think we see Jesus operating in this way through the Gospels. I think this was one thing that, that Jesus, everywhere he was going, whatever he was doing, whether he was teaching and transforming the minds of people or healing and transforming the bodies of people, whatever Jesus was doing, wherever he went, he was constantly leaving things better than he found them until we come to this man in Mark chapter 10. And so let's look together at these verses. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. If you're able to stand in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we share these verses together today? Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and he knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. And verse 22 says, But disheartened by the saying, deeply saddened. The idea of the Greek word there for disheartened is grieved, and the, and the picture is of a thunderstorm coming into the area. There was a deep gloom came over this man, disheartened by the saying, grieved to his heart, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be seated together this morning. Father, help us as we explore your word today. Remind us of your goodness. But also, Lord, remind us of your call upon our lives. The call to come and follow you is a call to take up the cross. To die to ourselves that we might live to Christ. And as we pray, you would help us to understand, but even more so, Lord... Help us to walk in it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would tend to agree with uh, Pastor Warren Wearsby who said of this man, 
Of all the people that ever came to the feet of Jesus, and throughout the Gospels you see many people coming and falling at Jesus' feet, pleading for a healing, pleading for some wisdom, pleading for answers and, and direction. Of all those who ever came to the feet of Jesus, this man is the only one who went away worse than he came. And so I've entitled today's message, Leaving worse than you came and I hope this won't be the case for any of us today so how then do we come to Jesus and leave better than we came that's what we're going to talk about together this morning let's look right there at verse 17 and we see in verse 17 what I would call the socialites petition when I think about this rich young ruler, uh, we see this man, and, and honestly, worldly speaking, from, a, from an earthly point of view, we see this man, and this guy had it all. I mean, you look at this man, and his description is found in, in Matthew and Mark and in what we call the Synoptic Gospels, which, which share these stories from various points of view. And there, are, and there are some differences in the way that they describe this man. But when you put them all together, you come up with this man being a rich, young ruler. In the book of Mark here, in verse 22, we find that this man was prosperous. He was rich. He had great possessions. And for the Jews there in the first century who believed in something not unlike what we see in the, what's known as the prosperity gospel today, the prosperity gospel teaches that, that if you love God and, and walk according to His commandments, that God will bless you with health and wealth and happiness in this life. That you'll have all your dreams fulfilled because God is a, is a dream fulfiller. And they, they write out everything in the scriptures uh, about any kinds of persecution or the fact that, that following Jesus is hard. They write out the places where Jesus said, in this life you're going to have trouble. Where he said, take up your cross and follow me. And that's not just a little cross emblem you wear on a necklace around your neck. No, this is the picture of coming and dying to yourself and sometimes literally dying for the cause of Christ. This man was prosperous. He was one that everyone looked to and wished they could be him, for he had great Possessions. He was also, as Matthew records in Matthew 19, this man was young. He was in his prime. He was in the prime of life. He was healthy. He, he was athletic. He was everything that anyone else would want to be. He was living in the prime of his life. And you think about the culture in which we live. What kind of life is it that, that is exalted? Well, it's the prosperous life, but it's also life in the prime. I mean, who makes the magazine covers? Who are the ones that are put forward as, as the images of what you should esteem to be? It's those who, who are well-built and, and athletic and who and have the, what would be considered the perfect body. And we see these pictures all around us. Be like this and take and buy this product so you can be like this person. If you'll eat what so-and-so eats, then you'll be like them. And, then, and this is this picture of someone who is in their prime. And I think that this rich, young ruler was one of those. Everyone's looking to him and saying, that's who I want to be. But he was also... As the Gospel of Luke records, he was one of the ruling class. He had prestige. He had power. He could do what he wanted. He was the one who, among others, called the shots. 
And there's, in those days, there wasn't a separation between church and state. So not only was he a ruler among the religious elite, but he was also a ruler among the political elite. And he was one, again, that others looked to and said, that dude, he's got it all. If anybody is going to have favor with God, if anyone's going to get into heaven, it's going to be a guy like this. But you notice what he does. He comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He kneels before Jesus and he asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he almost asked the right question. So close. He recognized that there was something about Jesus that drew him in. I believe he recognized that Jesus could put him on the pathway. I believe he recognized that there was something that he was missing that Jesus had. And so he comes to Jesus. A man who everyone else looked at and said, this dude has it all. And there was something, there was something here that he understood, I'm missing. I'm missing something. I don't know what it is. So he comes to Jesus and he says, what's the one thing, Jesus? If I, if I could just do one thing to secure eternal life, to secure my place in the kingdom of heaven. What's the one thing, Jesus, that I still need to do, that I still need to add to my repertoire, if you will, in order to secure my place in heaven? He almost asked the right question. We'll come back to that in a moment. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of these things, that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us could boast. Because the reality is, like this rich young ruler, we will be tempted to boast in the works of our hands. To boast in the riches that we have gained. To boast in the quality of our lives. To boast in our power, our prestige, our position. And so what God did in all of His wisdom is to take all of those things off the table and say, no, salvation and the gift of eternal life is going to be just simply a gift of my grace. There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do to earn eternal life. It comes as the free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But notice what Jesus does. He could have very easily just looked the man in the eye and said, Dude, nothing. You can't do anything. There is nothing that you can do. And yet, notice, as Jesus often does, Jesus loved to answer a question with a question. I love that about Jesus, by the way. When you look through the scriptures, so often when Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question, which more opens up the truth for those who are ready to receive it and closes it off from those who are not. 
as happens here with this man. He begins there to talk about the purpose of God's law or the, the statute's purpose. What is the purpose of God's law? Jesus points him to a portion of the Ten Commandments, that, that second half of the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments, as we learned, governs our vertical relationship with God primarily. It's have no other gods before me and, and remember the Sabbath day as a day of worship and things of this sort. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments governs our horizontal relationships with one another. And that's where Jesus leads this man into that second half to talk about his horizontal relationships, things like not committing adultery, not lying, not, not stealing, those sorts of things, not taking another person's life. But before he gets to that, Jesus asks the question, why do you call me good? Now we sang it this morning, didn't we? You are good. And I love the chorus of that song that just repeats that truth. Growing up, I can remember a lot of times there was a saying in our church, we would say, God is good, and others would repeat. And we would say, all the time. Okay, and this became kind of a little mantra that, that was kind of a 90s type thing growing up. That, we, we, that was something that was pre prevalent in, in my church in the early late 80s and early 90s. And so we say these things, and we, and we know the goodness of God. It's proclaimed all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, we see the goodness of God being elevated. And Jesus here says to this man, you just called me good. You called me good teacher. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, is Jesus rejecting that title? No, he's not rejecting the title. He's simply questioning the man's motivation in extending that title to him. So why do we call him good? As I meditated upon these things this week, I began to think about there's really two primary reasons why we might call God good or why we might refer to Christ as good, why we would sing to him, you are good. I think there are two primary reasons why we might do that. And one of these leads to faith and eternal life, and one of these leads in a very different direction. You see, I think that we might call him good either because it's flattery or because it's faith. Now think about the nature of flattery for a moment. Flattery is when I speak words of positive affirmation towards someone in order that I might gain something from them. Even if, even if that which I seek to gain is simply their good favor. Now, I may be seeking something more. I may, may be seeking monetary gain. I may, I may be seeking position. Flattery can lead toward all kinds of things of that nature. And I think there's a place that we have to be careful of when we proclaim the goodness of God. I think there's a place that we have to be very, very careful that we are not making a statement of His goodness as a means of gain for ourselves. This is heart motive. And, and I don't know that we can judge the heart motive of this man, but I certainly believe it was heavily leaning toward the side of flattery. Let's butter up Jesus so that I can get what I want. But the perfect Son of God who knew all things knew the heart of this man. 
and knew that it had not yet taken hold of true faith. You see, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things not yet seen. It's the confidence in things hoped for. And this hope is not some uh, kind of ethereal, well, I've got it, and now maybe I don't have it anymore. No, this hope is an assurance in who God is and what God has done. And that's what this man is ultimately being called to by Jesus. He is being called into the assurance of hope. He is being called into a real and abiding faith. But I think he simply came hoping to flatter Jesus and get what he thought he needed at the time. So then Jesus points him to the law. He says, you know the commandments. You're not unaware. We, we joked at the beginning of this series of how many of us could even name the Ten Commandments, and we did pretty good as a church when we took that, that little poll, but none of us really got all of them right, and many of us really, really struggled with that. But in these days, in, in, in the days of Jesus, every good Jew could knock out the Ten Commandments with, with no problem whatsoever. They had this portion of God's Word memorized because they believed that, not just knowing that, but if you could live up to those Ten Commandments, surely, surely God would have to receive you. Surely God would have to grant you the gift of eternal life through your obedience. And that's what most of the Jews in the first century believed. And by the way, that's what so many believe today. So many believe today that if you can just live a good moral life, if you're going to measure up, to whatever list of rules and regulations, whether it's the Ten Commandments or any other additions that we might have, or if you can just do better than the average, if you can do better than most folks, then surely God will be pleased with you. And I, I believe that's what this rich young ruler believed. But at the same time, he recognized there's something missing. And I don't quite know what it is, and so he came to Jesus. The truth about God's law is this. The law of God can direct us to Jesus, but it can never deliver us. It can never deliver us from our sin. Because the reality is that all of us have broken God's law. Even if we're self-deceived like this young man who, hearing the commandments, said, Hey, teacher, I've kept all those. What else you got? Can you add some more here? Because I've done all these. And as we've talked over the summer, there's no way he had done all those. Maybe he had been externally faithful, but the heart of the matter was still at issue. The heart of the matter was still a problem. Because the true heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And while he may have been externally faithful to his wife and not committing adultery... Certainly, he had disobeyed in the sense that he had lusted after other women in his heart. And as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, thus breaking that commandment. Perhaps he had never taken anyone else's life and had been externally faithful to the commandment not to murder. But certainly, there had been a moment in his life when he had hated someone else in his heart. He had wished he could take their life and in that moment he had broken that commandment because to hate someone in your heart is equivalent to murder according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So while he may have been externally faithful, internally he certainly had not been. And so the law directs us to Jesus, the fulfiller of the law. 
both the giver and the fulfiller of the law. The law directs us to Christ and says, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And here He is. The law was never meant to save us. The law was always meant to teach us that we need a Savior. The law was always meant to point us to Christ. Galatians chapter 2 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So if you sit here today resting in what you believe you can accomplish to earn the favor of God and to guarantee your place in heaven and eternal life. If you're resting in your own works, I want to say to you today, listen to what Galatians chapter 2 is saying. No one will be justified by their works. You'll be condemned by your works, just as I would be. None of us will be justified. None of us will be made right with God through what we can do. You see, there are two kinds of religion in the world today. There's do religion and there's done religion. Do religion says, here are the things that you must do to guarantee that God, whatever He is like, will be satisfied with you and to guarantee your place in heaven, whatever that might look like in that particular religion. Here's your list, is what do religion says. But then Jesus Christ came along and said, it's not, it's not about do, it's never been about do. Do was only enough to condemn you. No. It's going to now be about what I have already done. So when Jesus was breathing his last breaths upon the cross and cried out, It is finished. That was the defining truth of Christianity. He did not say on the cross, I've done all I can, now it's your turn. He said, it is finished. It is done. The debt of your sin is paid in full. And your only part is to receive the gift of faith that I would give you to trust fully in what I have done. Stop trying to pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. Stop trying to make yourself acceptable to God. He has already extended His love for you and proven it in the cross. God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were doing all the things that would condemn us, that Christ died for us. He did everything necessary to rescue us from sin and death, from hell and the grave. It's done. But are we resting in what Christ has done, are we still asking what the rich young ruler asked? What must I do? What must I do to get this eternal life? As we finish this morning, let's look at these last couple of verses and see the Savior's prescription for this man. Now, I want to say something. It would be easy for us to misinterpret this as a command for all believers at all times that all of us as followers of Jesus, we need to go out and sell all of our possessions and give everything we have to the poor and then go serve uh, God in India or in Africa. And now, that may be God's call upon your life. I want to be clear because I don't want to go to the other extreme and say that's not God's call for any of us. There are some for whom that is God's call because that's the rescue that they need. That's what the rescue this man needed. 
but the rescue looks different in different lives, as we'll see. But I want you to see something about Jesus here. Verse 21 is one of the most tender verses in all of the Gospels. And Jesus, looking at him, the idea is looking him in the eye, face to face with this man. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, how did Mark, who received most of his testimony of the Gospels through the Apostle Peter, how did he know that Jesus loved him in that moment? It was visible on his face. He could see that Jesus had deep and abiding affection for this young man. But notice what he did as a result. Jesus looking at him, he loved him, and he said this to him, you like one thing. If he stopped right there, the man would be like, yeah, I know, that's why I'm here. What is it? You like one thing, here it is. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now some would say, that doesn't sound like love to me. Church, let's be reminded today, true love will not hesitate to speak a loaded truth. True love will speak a hard truth when it's necessary. We are lying to ourselves if we think that it is loving to withhold the truth. And so Jesus speaks to this man right to the heart of the matter for this man. He does what Ephesians 4 commands the church to do. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. This is part of our maturing as believers is learning to speak the truth in love. Now, some of us are really good at speaking the truth, but we're not very loving about it. And some of us are very loving to the extent that we tend to withhold the truth because we're afraid of offending. But Jesus here speaks truth in love to this man and says... This is what it will look like for you. This is what it will look like for you to come and follow me because he saw into the heart of this man and he recognized while this man thought that he was being obedient to all the law of God, he was breaking the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because the God on the throne of his heart was not the God of the Bible, was not the Father, the God of his heart was money. And so the remedy required was this. First of all, his financial slavery demanded a step of faith. You see, we look at a man with this kind of level of prosperity and we think, what freedom is there in that? And yet, understand very clearly, understand very clearly that there is a deceitfulness to riches. And by the way, church, understand every one of us in this room by the very fact that we are living in the United States of America, which is likely the most prosperous nation that this world has ever known, simply by being Americans, even if you're in the lower rungs of prosperity in this country, you are still richer than 98% of the people in the plant, on the planet. 
So if you think this isn't speaking to you today, listen up. We are the rich young ruler. Even if you're not a ruler today, you have prosperity that would threaten to enslave you and drag you off to hell. And so Jesus looks at this man, he recognizes the captivity of his heart. He recognizes that he was in slavery to his finances. He recognizes that his first love was not God, but it was his possessions. And he calls him to a step of faith. Now, was his salvation found in his obedience to go and sell all of his stuff? No, his salvation was found in the faith required to take the step. See, that's the difference. Jesus is not calling him to a work here that would guarantee God's favor. No, he's saying the work is already about to be done. When he says, when he encounters Jesus on the road, where was Jesus going? Read the rest of the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way to Jerusalem. What's he going to do there? We're just days removed from the triumphal entry where crowds were gathered and they're singing praises, Hosanna in the highest as Jesus is riding in on the colt and they're waving the palm branches and they are worshiping him. And then a week later, they are calling out, crucify him. And they nail him to that old rugged cross. And they mock him and spit upon him. And it's there that Jesus does the work to rescue sinners like the rich young ruler and sinners like us. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so Jesus looked right into the heart of the rich young ruler, saw that enthroned upon his heart was his money. And said, so this will never work. Either God's going to be your master or your money is. Money makes a great servant in the service of God, but it makes a horrible master. Secondly, we don't have time to dwell there any longer. His temporal treasures needed to be traded for heaven's hope. Jesus recognized you are resting in all that's happening in the here and now. You, you are resting, you're resting in the fact that, that you are rich and that you are young and, and that you have power and you are ruling over others. You are resting in the here and now and Jesus calls him to abandon all of it. That's what the call is. It's not just to abandon his riches. It's to abandon his position it's to abandon his reputation. It's to abandon all of it and come and follow Jesus. We see that because right after this, the disciples say, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And, and the implication is, yeah, we did. We've done what you asked this man to do. To trade in temporal treasures, the here and now for the eternity that will never end. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, he saw the heart of this man. While externally obedient to the law of God, his heart was captivated by sinful desires that would utterly destroy him. But Jesus shows him the path of life. And finally, the remedy required 
that his pride in leadership, it needed a pact of love. And the, and the pact of love was bound up in this, come and follow me. That's the call of the disciple. The call of the disciple does not show up at church every Sunday. The call of the disciple is not put a few bucks in the offering plate. The call of the, the disciple is not be a morally good person and do all you can to show everybody else how morally good you are. The call of the disciple is come and follow me. At the end of this chapter, Jesus called to his disciples. He called them in. He has a little holy huddle here and he says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Here's how it's going to be in my kingdom, Jesus says. Whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, this is what my kingdom is characterized by. Those at the top are at the bottom. The first are last. The rich are poor and the poor are rich. Everything is flipped upside down because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So for everybody that looked at the rich young ruler and said, this dude has it all. Jesus is saying, he's got nothing. He's got nothing that isn't going to be eaten up by moth and rust and pass away of the ages of time. It may seem as though Jesus put too much on this rich young ruler. Perhaps the call was too great. Perhaps it was too difficult. The mountain was too high to climb. How could he possibly ask him to do this and yet I think Pastor Kent Hughes said it so well that Jesus always demands. He always demands that those who come to him, they put away their other gods. They put away the false gods of possessions and position and power. Even the false gods of another person or a passion, another passion that we may have. That he says, come to me, put away all those other gods. There's only one true and living God. And, and, and the first commandment is given that we might see him and know him and know his goodness. And then we would proclaim His goodness not out of flattery, but out of faith in Him. And so we'll conclude here. The call of, of the disciple in Matthew 16. Let this lead us today. Jesus told His disciples, So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever would preserve his own prosperity, whoever would glory in the own, his own prime of life, whoever would snatch and cling to his own prestige and power, he'll lose all those things. Even if he has them to his deathbed, they ultimately will crumble. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we would say once again this morning, the gift of eternal life is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Do not trust in your own works. 
Don't trust in your own goodness. Trust in His goodness. Trust in His finished work. Trust in the fact that Jesus Christ did everything necessary to rescue your sin-sick soul just as He did for mine. And in so trusting, have heaven's hope. Have the assurance of life in Christ. But as we sing that the things of earth may go, grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace.